For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, what is the outlook for campaign finance reform and voting reform in Arizona? We'll get updates on both from Christopher Conover. Learn how the animated movie Finding Nemo is helping Navajo kids connect with their native language. StoryCorps introduces us to a Tucson woman who was a pioneer in the sport of skydiving in the 1960s. And get some friendly recommendations for your spring reading in a book I love. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Campaign finance is a murky subject made more complicated by the involvement of super PACs and anonymous donations. A campaign finance rewrite in Arizona, signed into law by Governor Doug Ducey, was meant to clear up some issues, but critics say it might make things worse. Christopher Conover reports. Bring up the topic of paying for campaigns and dark money is sure to be quickly mentioned. Dark money is money that is given to candidates by nonprofits, officially any group that falls under the 501c section of the tax code. Like super PACs, the dark money groups can give unlimited amounts of money. The difference lies in how the two are regulated. The Federal Election Commission oversees super PACs, while the Internal Revenue Service watches dark money groups. But the real difference in oversight comes from the fact that super PACs must report the names of donors to the FEC. Dark money groups do not have that requirement at the IRS. Arizona's new campaign finance law cedes state enforcement of dark money groups to the federal government. David Berman is a political science professor emeritus at Arizona State University. He has written and spoken extensively on the influence of dark money. You're becoming uh, dependent on the IRS to enforce the law, then I think you're, you're not going to get much enforcement. So the 501c4s are pretty much going to be operating uh, pretty much the way they want to without much public scrutiny. Uh, and that's and that, I, I think, can be considered a victory for, for dark money. The lack of transparency is a good thing, according to some members of the legislature. Republican Representative J.D. Mesnar told his colleagues on the floor he's fine with a lack of reporting. I think transparency is generally a good principle, but it is not the overarching principle. We have seen throughout our history situations where the government has used um, forcing people to disclose their donors, those who support them, those they associate with, have used that as a tool for attacking them for repressing them, for going, for going after them because they don't like them. Opponents look at that argument differently. They say not regulating dark money is the freedom to buy an election. Andy Barr is a Democratic strategist. As someone organizing campaigns, he says the deregulation of dark money at the state level will change who runs for office because outside groups with no accountability can outspend candidates. If you're trying to run for office, like, these new laws should discourage you from doing that because you do not have uh, control over your own destiny. Some would say that's cynical, but Barrett Marson, a Republican strategist, says money in politics is a reality. There's always cynicism 
when it comes to money and politics. But in the end, you know, we rarely actually do anything about it. You know, there, uh, someone has to fund campaigns. The ultimate judges on the changes may be the public. Opponents to the law could try and make political hay out of it this election season. Democratic strategist Barr says it could work, but he also says he doesn't expect lawmakers to stop approving laws like this one until the public reacts. If they people vote for these kinds of things, you can run against them and you can hurt them. I, you know, I think for us, we're going to have to show a test case uh, where a Republican who votes uh, for more dark money goes down because of that. Republican strategist Marson disagrees. It's very difficult for the voting public at large to truly grasp the concepts of dark money and uh, some of these issues. I don't believe it, it would play very well at all to target members who voted yes on this and use that in the campaign. I just don't believe voters will give it much weight. The new campaign finance law is about more than dark money. It also contains what some are calling the kingmaker provision, allowing candidates to give money to one another. Though that provision caused some heartburn for a handful of Republicans in the legislature and could be struck before the end of the legislative session. The law also allows unlimited donations of food and other costs associated with throwing fundraisers. It also doesn't require those donations be reported. Even though Governor Doug Ducey signed the bill, that may not be the final word. Some Democrats in the legislature are threatening to strike down the law with a referendum on the November ballot. That's difficult to put together, though. Organizers would need to collect 75,000 signatures in three months. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Christopher Conover. Christopher Conover, thank you for your report on campaign finance. Let's talk about an ongoing investigation right now into things that happened during the presidential primary, particularly in Maricopa County. What is the Justice Department really researching in this investigation? What do you think that they expect to find? The U.S. Justice Department is looking into the incredibly long lines in Maricopa County. Polls close at 7 o'clock on Election Day here in Arizona. The last vote in Maricopa County was cast just before 1 a.m. And the Justice Department simply wants to know why that was. Maricopa County had 60 polling places open countywide. So the Justice Department is asking, who made that decision? How did you decide where to put those 60 polling places? Why did you decide to only have 60 polling places? Things like that. This would be reflected in the vote because it seems to me that only the most intense and hardcore of voters are really going to wait those extra hours to cast a primary vote. Well, that's exactly correct. And people waited in line three hours during the day. We're not just talking from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. or midnight, 1 a.m., whatever it was. So it was a real problem. And that's one of the things that brought the Justice Department in. Was this a voter suppression issue? Some people have tried to say, yes, it was a voter suppression issue, trying to keep minorities from voting and things like that. When we look at where those polling places were, it cut across the, the county. Republicans uh, had trouble voting. Democrats had trouble voting. So it doesn't look like it was a conscious effort to keep a specific group from voting, at least at this point. We'll have to see what the Justice Department says as they really delve into it. And at the same time, there were some controversial comments made by voting officials in Arizona right after the election. Uh, what impact do you think those are having? 
right after the election, the Maricopa County uh, recorder who oversees elections in Maricopa County said, well, part of the problem with the lines was independents were in line when they can't vote. In Arizona, independents cannot vote in the presidential primary. They can vote in every other election. She quickly walked that statement back and said, no, that wasn't the problem. It was a problem in the sense of there were independents who did try to vote, who didn't understand the law, but that's not what caused these lines. When she came before the House, the Arizona House Elections Committee, they really took her to task, both Republicans and Democrats, on these long lines and how did she make the decisions and things like that. Are there already some results from the federal investigation being felt here in the state? No results from the federal investigation yet. That has just begun. They're gathering information. They're investigating. What, but people are being held to the fire at this point. Uh, the Maricopa County supervisor had to come and testify in front of the uh, Legislative House Elections Committee. It was a very long day for her. It was a long day when she had to go in front of the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors. So she is definitely being uh, held to, to responsibility, which she has admitted. To her credit, she came out relatively quickly and said, this was my fault. I made a mistake in only putting up 60 polling places. So she is being held responsible at this point. What do you think can reasonably be expected to be a result of this federal investigation into voting in Arizona? If the investigation yields bad decision making with no uh, with no malice, then what will result is decisions like this won't be made again. Things will be put in place to keep this from happening again. If there's some sort of malfeasance found that, this was done on purpose to suppress a certain segment of society's vote, then there will be other issues uh, that's obviously against the law, and someone will have to pay for that in the legal sense. Well, thank you for your time exploring this issue. Uh, Christopher, we'll look forward to updates. Thanks. A good book can really make a difference in a person's life. At this year's Tucson Festival of Books, I asked folks in attendance to share some of their favorites with us. Here is a book I love. My name is Jackie, and I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York. I moved to Tucson, Arizona in 1974. I love Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing by Judy Bloom. I feel it was a good book because the mother, she cared about her children and what happened to them and was involved, you know, in their lives. And I have my own um, ministry and I work with special needs children and I use um, that book. My name is Danny Ortiz. I'm from Silver City, New Mexico. I got a family of five. I'm married, all girls. Uh, we came here with a friend of mine, Stuart Hooker, who wrote this book, uh, A Cowboy Spirit. He's really imaginative and He's, he's had a hard life, so it, it, it makes sense to me when he, if you, if you read it, it's one of them books where it makes you think about what he's been through, and uh, it, I just love it. He's one of them guys that sit down and just meet one of my kids, and then he, he wrote a poem about my daughter who's had a hard time in a hard life. That was beautiful, and she, she cried over it, and my family loves him. He's a great guy. 
if you have a dream to go out there and get it, and that's what he did. It's hard, but he did it. Cowboy Spirit by Stuart Hooker. Okay, my name's John Thompson. I am a prolific reader. Could be three, five books a week. Two of probably the best science fiction authors write together, Jerry Purnell and Larry Niven. Great inventors, technologically as well as writers. They wrote a trilogy called The Ring World Chronicles. Unbelievable. A trip around a flat world that had large jets around the outside of it to give it spin. It is the most fantastic series of books. If you like science fiction, get those old books, The Ring World Chronicles. My name's Emily Gilmore. I'm eight years old, and my favorite book is Kylie, The Carnival Fairy, because it involves um, adventurous stuff. You can find more reading recommendations online at azpm.org, and you can always share your favorite book stories with us by using the hashtag, a book I love. Navajo is one of the oldest indigenous languages in the United States, but many fear it is on the verge of disappearing from use. A new initiative by the Navajo community, with help from Pixar Animation Studios, has found an innovative way to get children interested in speaking their native language. Julie Lucetta went to northern Arizona to find out more. I can introduce myself. That's nine-year-old Sienna Nez introducing her clan, her family, her school, and where she lives in her native Navajo language. She has been learning it through a special class at her school since kindergarten. It's really hard to learn. On a sunny day in Window Rock, Arizona, Sienna is at the park with her grandfather, Brian Wanika, for an Easter egg hunt. I'm proud of her that she's speaking Navajo. That's real good. I, I don't even really know how to speak now well. She knows more than I do. Juanica grew up away from the reservation, and his parents did not teach him Navajo as a kid. Today, to speak with Siena and her two other siblings, he is trying to learn his native language. I'm learning, but not as much, not as fast as she does. I'm older, so it's harder for me to, to understand and catch on. Located right on the border with New Mexico, north of Petrified Forest, Window Rock is the capital of the Navajo Nation. A small, windswept town, it is named after a natural window formed into a big sandstone cliff. On weekends, herds of sheep can be seen grazing through local school grounds. Monuments across town commemorate the many Navajo veterans who served in the U.S. military. Most residents are Native American, but many did not learn to speak Navajo growing up. I believe that culture is embedded in the language and so that if we lose our language a majority of our culture is going to go with it that our traditional culture all it takes is that one um, gap to lose your language forever 
Manny Wheeler is the head of the Navajo Nation Museum. It's a beautiful language. It's a language that saved uh, our country with the Navajo Code Talkers. It's a language that is still spoken by more than half of the Navajo Nation. So it's, it's, a, it's a powerful and beautiful language. After successfully getting Star Wars dubbed into Navajo in 2013, Wheeler partnered with Pixar Studios to bring the native version of Finding Nemo to the big screen. The critically acclaimed animated movie was a huge success when it came out in 2003. The main character, Nemo, is a clownfish who lives in the sea and gets captured by a diver. The story follows the adventures of his father as he sets out to rescue him. Twelve-year-old Quentin Keene plays the Navajo voice of Nemo. Quentin says he is super proud to be fluent, but he's afraid not enough kids today are learning Navajo. Um, I feel like um, my, my native language is going out. At the only theater in Window Rock, Finding Nemo in Navajo, or it's a Nemo is about to be screened in front of a packed room. Before it begins, children wait in line to get autographs from cast members who came from all across the Navajo Nation to attend the event. Sunlatsa Jim Martin came to see Finding Nemo with her daughters. I was really excited that they did a children's animation because that's the generation we need to reach. Her 11-year-old, Dejone Ba, says that seeing movies in Navajo is a way for her to show respect to her elders. We're not just, we're not just fooling around and doing other things, but we're learning our culture. In the crowd, president of the tribal nation, Russell Begay, is also signing autographs for fans. I do play the lobster and, uh, in the movie, so, so I had to really work on my Navajo Bostonian accent. Begay says he hopes to attend as many screenings as possible to show his support for initiatives that promote the Navajo culture. It really enhances our language. It brings back pride and joy of speaking Navajo. Beginning in the 1870s, the federal government created programs to assimilate Native Americans into white society. Entire communities were relocated while Native children were forced to attend English-speaking boarding schools. There, they were taught that their indigenous languages and cultures were uncivilized. Wheeler of the Navajo Nation Museum says the impact of these efforts is still felt today. There are languages in this country that are indigenous that are vanishing on a yearly basis. You know, there's plenty of tribes out there where their native speakers are that, you know, you can count on one hand. It's owed that these languages and cultures must survive. If they don't, then that's a, a tragedy for, for his, the history of this country. With projects like Finding Nemo and Navajo, Wheeler wants to create a place where language sharing is comfortable. It creates an environment where it's okay to ask questions, it's okay to share language, it's okay to admit that you're not fluent. He says the movie is for everyone, not just fluent speakers. He hopes it will encourage more kids, but also more adults, to be proud of their native language. For myself and for thousands of others like myself who are like, oh, we're not, I'm not fluent, I'm not fluent. But really, it's like, you know what? You really do understand um, more than you think you do. When he was growing up, there were only three TV channels available on the reservation, all in English. If his generation had access to pop culture in Navajo back then, he says the language would have been passed on more easily. Because Navajo is such a descriptive language, 
Wheeler says seeing the audience react at the first screening of Finding Nemo in Navajo was really amazing. And I mean, it was just so cool, man. I mean, the, the parts that are sad, they seem sadder. The parts that are funny, they seem funnier. Yeah. These guys are, are, are being engaged emotionally. And on top of that, they're not aware that um, language awareness and preservation and learning is happening at the same time. Growing up outside of Gallup, New Mexico, 27-year-old Natalie Benali says her parents wanted her to learn English over Navajo. As a teenager, she would spend weekends with her Navajo-speaking grandmother and feel embarrassed that she could not talk to her fluently. Today, she's the voice of Dory in the movie. I would say my grandma would be very, very happy and very, very proud. <laughs> she always would push me. She would always be the one talking to me and keeping me out of trouble. You know, We all have those stories of grandmas being the ones who really do teach um, a lot of what our parents aren't able to teach us. Back at the theater, Wheeler watches on as kids and their families stream out of the movie with big smiles on their faces. I never ever go around stating that this is the magic pill. I know that, and I'm conscious that it's gonna take much more than than just movies, but this is definitely um, a huge leap forward in figuring out how we're going to save our language. For Arizona Spotlight and Window Rock, this is Julie Lucetta. The Navajo version of Finding Nemo will be available on DVD at the Navajo Nation Museum starting April 26th. The motto of the nonprofit group StoryCorps is listening is an act of love. Since 2003, thousands from around the world have had the opportunity to record stories in the form of a conversation with someone they love. StoryCorps visited Tucson last fall, and next we'll hear Katie Estrella interview her neighbor, T. Taylor, a woman who has lived a life of many adventures. My name is Katie Estrella. I'm 67 years old, and I am with my friend T. Taylor. My name is T. Taylor. I am 74 years old, and um, I am with Katie, and she is my friend, acquaintance from the dog park. And it turns out that you are a world-famous skydiver. Is that the correct <laughs> word? Skydiver. Uh-huh. Right. And um, maybe we should begin there, and then later we'll go get back to the dogs. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think I heard somewhere that uh, it was your father who first mentioned skydiving. I was about 16 years old, and my father had read something in, in a men's magazine about a new sport in California where they uh, were, would jump out of airplanes and do acrobatic things in the air before they would open their parachute. Didn't that sound interesting to me? And I said, yeah, it does. Well, what was it about your father that made him so different from most fathers who would want to protect their daughters from doing anything dangerous? What was it about him? Well, I think it wasn't what was about him. It was about what his children were. And he had four daughters, and I was the oldest boy. <laughs> you were his substitute boy? Yeah, that's it. Oh, I see. And what about your mom? Was she was she worried about you? No. How old were you when you first had that conversation with him? I was 16, mm-hmm. but I didn't make a jump until I was 19. And what happened then? Um, nothing. I went out and made a jump. <laughs> 
<laughs> I didn't even tell him I was going. Oh, I see. Was uh-huh. that before? I think I heard a story about some landings at the university that you found out about. That, that's it. There was an article in the newspaper, and um, three guys had made an illegal jump out of an airplane and landed on the campus. Oh, it was just a big uproar. This was uh, 59 or 60, and... Uh, I took the names of some of the people in the article and found them in the in the telephone book. We had telephone books for people back then, and um, called them and said, "I'd like to make a parachute jump." And they told me where the the training class was going to be. And I went there on a Friday night for a couple of hours, and then on Saturday morning I went out to uh, a dirt road where they landed with the airplane. They put me out on a static line, jumped from this airplane, and I landed in a plowed field next to the road. Oh, wait, I don't understand. What is a static line jump? Static line is where the parachute is opened automatically from the airplane. They Instead of having a ripcord, you have a, a line that is attached through the pins in your parachute, but it's attached to the airplane so that when you jump out, it, um, it, it pulls the, the pins like a ripcord would. It's the same way military people jump from an airplane. But how far up in the air are you at that point? Or oh, were you? About 3,000 feet above the ground. Wow. <laughs> oh, that's not so far. That's not so far. <laughs> were you at all afraid? Um, the first time, I was just so, you know, it was happening so fast and all that I didn't have time to be afraid. After that, for about 25 jumps, I was kind of afraid. And I, I would get in the airplane, I'd go, why am I doing this? I, after this jump, I'm not going to jump anymore. And I'd be so excited, I could hardly wait to get back in the air. Were there any other girls along with you? No. No, this was at the very beginning of, of sport parachuting. There were not even places where you could buy parachutes when we started. It was all surplus military. But you were in competitions in Europe very quickly, weren't you? Within two years, I'm really pretty lucky because I've always been pretty coordinated, and skydiving came very easy for me. I never was out of control in the air. And so I started being good at there were only two aspects at the time, and one was um, uh, accuracy, hitting a target while you're under the canopy, and style, which is the speed and accuracy of a set of maneuvers you do while you're in freefall. And that came fairly easy to me. That allowed me to be on the team in 1964, and the team went to Leutkirk, Germany, for the world meet. Had you ever been abroad before that? No. No. Wasn't that pretty amazing? That was a wonderful adventure. T. Taylor was interviewed by Katie Estrella in the Mobile StoryCorps booth in Tucson. More local StoryCorps stories are available at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood, with assistance from Isaac Rodriguez. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore.